0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Going for your first ever run round the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com/slash running. New Balance. Run your way.
0: Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the frontman for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, He's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be, because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Or to select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store by subscriptions.com podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. (laughs) And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. The Summer Olympics are well underway in Tokyo. And for today's podcast, the historian Christopher Harding looks back at the last time that Japan hosted the competition in 1964. He reveals how it redefined the nation on the world stage two decades after the Second World War. Our deputy editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Christopher to find out more. We're
2: well, obviously talking in the summer of 2021 and Japan's about to hopefully host the much delayed Summer Olympics. Um, and it seemed a good opportunity to look back at the time when Japan last hosted the Olympics, which was 1964. Um We can talk about that a bit in a minute, but first of all, I thought it would be useful to go back a bit because this was quite a pivotal moment, wasn't it, for Japan. What was its reputation like internationally at the end of the Second World War?
3: I think it was pretty much shredded um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, obviously, you have powerful memories of Japan having started what turns out to be a disastrous war in Asia and the Pacific. So, you know, for the Americans... Pearl Harbour, the day that will live in infamy. And for the British, I suppose then the attack on some of their territory out there, in particular the fall of Singapore early in 1942. So that sense of of, of starting an aggressive and hugely destructive war would be the first obvious reason why Japan's reputation was shredded. The second one, I think, was the POW issue that was very emotive and, you know, for good reason for a very long time. You know, we're talking of tens of thousands of British service personnel who uh, became POWs. A quarter of those never made it back. They died in the camp. And we've all seen the pictures, um, the terrifying malnutrition. We heard about the the, the beatings, all the rest of it. Um, That comes back to uh, Britain, although some people don't want to talk about it. Some of the POWs don't want to relive it again by telling people about it. But in other cases, the news does get back and it's in the paper and there are claims for compensation, etc. So all these things are live issues and they're really feeding into... um, people's anger at Japan. And I suppose the last thing, maybe it's a country that people, most people weren't that familiar with to begin with. You know, so Germany often gets compared with Japan. Germany is culturally familiar to people in all sorts of ways. Japan was already very distant, slightly mysterious, and it makes it even harder then for, I think, Japan to come back from um, this extremely negative impact on its reputation uh, as a result of the war. Mm. Those parallels with Germany are interesting. So it, it was largely
2: the fact this was an unknown culture to start with that made it harder for Japan to rehabilitate itself internationally.
3: I think that's right. I think the other thing that went on um in the years after 1945, there are quite a few parallels, I think, with Germany. You've got two populations often talked about as being as suffering a moral as well as as well as a material defeat. I mean, the devastation, you know, the firebombing of of cities on each side, huge civilian casualties on each side. And in the early months and years, you find people on both sides who simply want to forget what's just happened. They want to bury the recent past. Struggling to eat, struggling to deal with family members that they've lost, just wanting to try to rebuild. So the question of war, responsibility, guilt, etc. doesn't immediately uh, arise for for many people in in both those places. But when it does arise, I suppose in Germany, and people talk about Konrad Adenauer, the first chancellor of West Germany, really um, leading a kind of political charge. And then there's faith groups, there are cultural literary initiatives, etc. All these things, but centered around a real um, powerful political attempt to try to show contrition, to try to do practical things to make up for what happened uh, in Germany, particular, I suppose, particularly relations with Israel. Um, I think in Japan, it's quite hard to find a figure who you might compare to Konrad Adenauer for really generating that coherent, consistent sense of apology, contrition, what can we do to put this right? Let's not sweep this under the carpet. There are people in Japan, you know, across the the 50s, 60s and later who who do want to do that. But there are always other voices who say, well why were the British in Asia in the first place? We liberated Asia, or we're being made to feel an excessive degree of of guilt here. What about the British Empire? There are lots of if-but people, basically, uh, in Japan, and even down to the present day, so that you don't have that consistent message, I think, in the same way that you did from Germany. I suppose the other thing people say is that Japan, in its position at that point, particularly between 1945 and 52, under American occupation, um, there wasn't quite the push that there might have been from the Americans for the Japanese to rebuild relationships with uh, the Republic of Korea or with uh, China. Japan's big relationship in that part of the world became America. And America's narrative of the war was that the Japanese people were innocent and that it was their leadership and it was the armed forces to whom all the guilt really ought to go. And so again, there's possibly a role for the Americans there and not encouraging the kind of, yeah, rebuilding of, of, of bridges that perhaps might have otherwise taken place.
2: Did that view of Japan by the Americans seep into how the Japanese people saw themselves and the nation's role in the war?
3: I think so. Yes. Yeah. So people sometimes talk about a victim mentality, amongst the Japanese. So, of course, you can't really talk about this period without talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the international outcry in the years after that, especially once it became clear what the after-effects of those bombs were and how, for many critics, criminal and unjustifiable it was to use those against civilian, largely civilian populations. So, with that in mind, I suppose also with the fire bombings of places like Tokyo in mind, you know, destroyed huge parts of the city, it became easy and it was, I suppose, quite convenient for many Japanese to cast themselves in the victim role. Um, and when... Soldiers came home to Japan from abroad. You do find some Japanese people writing to the newspapers saying it's absolutely criminal and disgusting what our soldiers did in places like China. We're just now finding out about it. We had no idea. Our government said this was a good war and that it was going well for us. We were kept in the dark. We were manipulated, etc. So, and of course there are elements of truth in that, but it became a very, very powerful uh, narrative, and you can see it in you know Japanese drama and films in the years after the war kind of romanticising the victim element and the bravery of young Japanese men who fought in the war for what turned out to be the wrong cause, you know, entirely the wrong cause. But again, it's always the, you know, the bad leaders who who get the rap and not everybody else. Though we obviously need to be careful about overgeneralizing an entire
2: population at a point in time, can we get a sense of what life was like for Japanese people in the sort of years after the war?
3: Yeah, I think especially for people in the big cities, um, it was extraordinarily hard. So some figures say up to 9 million people were homeless uh, immediately after the war. I mean, the firebombing, extraordinarily effective on cities that are basically built of wood and paper in large part. Um, So whole swathes of cities like Tokyo and Osaka just completely destroyed. So you've got homelessness, you've got malnutrition, you have disease, half a million civilians dead, a couple of million or so troops also dead. And there's that sense of, yeah, a moral and spiritual defeat as well as a material one because this war had been built up as being necessary and and good and existential for Japan. So there are stories of new sorts of literature coming out in this era, which are full of uh, despair and pornography. There's a lot of alcoholism, A, a real sense of how do we possibly come back from this? I think the only chink of light in it is a sense of relief that the American occupation is far more benign than people have been led to expect. It's more creative. It's less keen on punishing civilians. And for some people, there's a sense of having had a foot a boot taken off their throats because the old leadership has been done away with. It's quickly put on trial. You know, Japan has the equivalent in Tokyo of the Nuremberg trials, and some of these leaders are hung, others are in prison. So there's a real vivid sense of the old leadership being done away with and a great sense of relief at that. But people's everyday circumstances are pretty awful, and I suppose the last thing you'd have to add is uh, uh, the unemployment rates in Japan bad anyway. And then all these soldiers come back with no work to go to. So unemployment and and criminality. In general, the late 40s and the early 50s are basically pretty miserable. And it's hard, unless you've got a very powerful imagination, to see how the future might be much better.
2: We should talk about the US occupation um, that you mentioned there. Um, How did the US go about reshaping Japan? Um, And by what sort of forces did it do this? And how successful was it, I suppose?
3: Yeah, it's an important question, isn't it? I, sometimes when we talk about this with uh, with my students at university, I try and plug the role of a historian and say, you know, look, first and foremost, the Americans in 1945 had to be historians. Because in Japan, you've got a country that after uh, 1868, when you have a modernising group of people coming to power, the old shogunate done away with, they have a what looks like a really successful modernising project. You know, you have democracy of a certain kind, you have industry, you have advancements in science and culture. Japan looks like a really promising country, really up until probably the late 1920s. So the Americans had to ask themselves, why is it that a modernising project that seemed to be going well, and was going along vaguely, actually not vaguely, quite specifically Western lines, which is, you know, good for America's view of the world, why does it go wrong? Why does it go this badly wrong? And on that basis, how do we then use the occupation of Japan to, to put the country on tracks, you know, of which we would approve? And I suppose one of the conclusions they reach is that Japan's modernization in that earlier period had been incomplete, that it was kind of superficial, that all the things I just talked about were true, Japan acquired all these things, all these trappings of modernity, but there was still a sort of feudal mentality going on underneath, particularly in the way that people would be prepared to do what superiors required of them, whether it's your father and a family, you know, your boss at work, or your superior in the armed forces. Um, and how do you uproot that? Mentality. And so, you know, the, the, to the question about whether it's successful or not, there are some unsuccessful elements because for some of the Americans during the occupation, they wanted a real root and branch reform of Japanese culture, of Japan's outlook. You know, so you can't bow anymore, you have to hold hands. They were even promoting uh, kissing because these sorts of things are felt to be more democratic. They put men and women on more of an equal footing. That level of cultural overhaul, you can't really. Um, successfully achieve, it turns out. But in other ways, I think they did. um, They did succeed remarkably. We sometimes think about it in terms of three Ds. So demilitarization, got rid of Japan's armed forces, completely successful. Uh, Democratization, trying to persuade the Japanese that democracy is more than elections every few years, that you have to have a sort of civic responsibility That, I think, was was partially successful. Women get the vote for the first time. Um, Lots of left-wing parties that would have been criminalised in previous years in Japan do rather well, at least early on. Um, So on those sorts of measures, it seems to do okay. And trying to decentralise power, that's the the other D, the idea that you had these hugely powerful um, conglomerates who controlled lots of Japan's wealth or were in cahoots with the government. So trying to disband those, people would have heard of uh, Mitsubishi, for example. So trying to piece up part these big conglomerates known as zaibatsu. So in some ways I think that most of that was quite successful but in the end of course what happens your listeners will be well aware in the late 40s and early 50s communism becomes the big bogeyman. And so whereas some of the um, uh, some of the people that go out from the United States to Japan to run the occupation very young idealistic people wanting to really make this remake the country in the image of new deal america in the end they get overruled by people who say we can't have Japan as a kind of socialist basket case. It needs to be reliably middle-of-the-road conservative, it needs to be friendly towards capitalism, needs to be very hostile towards communism. That includes, of course, the Soviet Union, but also the Chinese after 1949. So some of those early idealistic elements of the occupation slightly fall by the wayside in the second half. Um, But I would say in general, in terms of creating, in the end, a stable, prosperous country that is democratic in the basic sense of you're more or less free to do and say whatever you want I'd say you have to say that it's a a successful project
2: all those processes you just outlined sound quite long and involved processes are there key moments along the way that we can point to and say these are key moments in it being viewed differently internationally or is that too reductive
3: I think an interesting moment for for me is the the 1948 Olympics in London, where um, the Americans, as the kind of chaperones of Japan back onto the international stage, try to get Japanese athletes invited. Um, And um, they're told no. You know, so soon after the war, British are doing really badly in terms of levels of poverty, still um, worried about rationing these sorts of things. You can't have... Japanese, all the Germans for that matter, coming in and competing and not expect to have possibly even street demonstrations is one of the worries. So forty-eight is an interesting moment because clearly it's too early to, as it were, welcome Japan back into the international community. But in the later years, you get steps along the way. I suppose one of the other big moments would be uh, the San Francisco Peace Treaty in 1951, um, where, you know, Japan is officially relations are reset, you know, with the former allies. And then after that, sort of step by step until Japan's a member of the United Nations then in 1956. And after that, late 50s, early 60s, there's a general shift, I think, in people's views of Japan from those wartime associations more towards Japan as an extraordinarily successful economic power. So becoming known for its industry, for its exports. Some people don't like that. They see it as sort of war by other means. But other people are quite happy to accept a new stereotype of the hard-working, go-getting Japanese salaryman um, as you know their new image of Japan. And I think probably by the early 60s, that's becoming quite well established.
2: The kind of emergence of those sort of international stereotypes fascinates me. So was this image of a sort of a business person of a Japanese business person internationally sort of recognised? Was that how people thought about this story?
3: I think so, yes. I mean, some of these businessmen um, travel, obviously, so London, New York, et cetera, and there are Japanese offices being set up for big companies like uh, Sony. Um, certainly, uh, as you go through the 60s and early 70s, Japan's international presence in that sense is really obvious. You also find, and I, I dug this up a few years ago, uh, documentaries, documentaries, being made including for television about Japan because you know for better or for worse there is a new fascination with Japan, partly down to what happened during the war. Um, and so you have journalists, documentary makers going out there. Later on, I suppose you have, I mean, I think, remember when I was growing up, Michael Palin, Clive James did it. You have a series of people going out to, as it were, discover Japan. Um, and what they discover, I think, certainly in the early 60s, is a country of extraordinarily hardworking, maybe quite straight laced people, with on the side all the kind of pop culture trappings that you might expect from a country that has fallen in love with, or been forced to more or less by the American occupation, fallen in love with American culture, you know, rockabilly, jazz, the Beatles, um, uh, to give you a British example. So those things I think are quite clear about japan by the early 60s especially once you've got a new generation of of uh, brits and americans who didn't directly experience the war for themselves they're more open to understanding japan and the people of japan kind of closer to their own age so these things do effectively supplant i think that older more negative image
2: um and when was japan awarded the 1964 games
3: so it tried to get the games, I think, in, in uh, for 1960, which went to Rome instead. Uh, another, you know, former Axis power trying to rehabilitate itself, uh, but it got awarded the 1964 games instead, and that happened uh, in 1959. The announcement was made. Tokyo had been trying for ages um, to get it, and it's hard to find evidence of too much anger or upset by that point. You know, I, mean, I think if Japan had been given the games perhaps 10 years earlier, people have been said, why are we rewarding uh, a country like this by giving it the games? But I think enough time had passed by the end of the 1950s. The Soviets were by far and away more worrying for people than Japan at that point. So you don't see unless I've missed something, an enormous international outcry at them being given the games. <laughs>
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: And I think if you ask people in 1964, even if you ask them probably up to about 20 years ago, what Japan meant to them, they would probably say two things. One was, one would be beautiful tradition with all the aesthetics that come with that tea ceremony, kimono. The other would be high technology. And that
1: really begins in 1964. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month.
2: The current Games has been met with a very mixed reaction, um, which is probably an understatement in Japan. (laughs) Do we get a sense of how um, being awarded the Olympic Games was received by Japanese people?
3: I think at the time, I mean, you do have a few naysayers. There are a couple of strands of thinking that are sceptical about the Games in Japan. One is the one that's always present every time, which is this costs too much money. Um, and there are people still in the late 50s early 60s who were doing badly um, and they think why are we spending these prodigious amounts of money on the Olympic Games you know instead various figures are bandied about, but they are clearly the most expensive games ever uh, at this point. I think the more interesting form of opposition to the games is um, that it's being used by the Japanese government as a kind of bread and circuses distraction. Because there are lots of people in Japan who, you know, to go back to something we were saying a bit earlier, had loved the early years of the occupation when it looked as though Japan was going to emerge as a real left of centre social democratic country, which it hadn't been politically or culturally for a very, very long time, if ever. The fact that then that seems to get taken away and Japan is so closely tied with the United States, particularly in terms of its foreign policy, where japan is supposed to be under its new constitution a pacifistic uh, country instead it's tied to american foreign policy and so is at risk of uh, missile attack nuclear attack by the soviet union all these sorts of all these sorts of things seem crazy to a certain subsection of Japanese public opinion. And it seems to them as though um, the Japanese government is just, as I say, distracting people uh, with the games as well as with ever-increasing prosperity and not really paying attention to politically what kind of a country it's becoming. So those two strands of opposition, I think, are there. But I would also say they're fairly marginal. So there's a really strong pitch by the government. That it's the pitch they make to the International Olympic Committee. It's the pitch they make to the public, which is this is our chance to show people the real Japan, real Japanese people. We are not butchers and slavers and warmongers. We are peaceful. We are increasingly prosperous. And we want to show the rest of the world that. How else do you do that in one short, sharp hit? But hosting the Olympics. So it's a great pitch. It's kind of hard to argue with, isn't it?
2: Um, And what physical changes did Tokyo undergo in order to host the Games? Were there any particular innovations um, during that period?
3: Yeah, I mean, in terms of basic infrastructure, Tokyo, of course, had to be rebuilt, parts of it from absolutely nothing, you know, after 1945. I think the criticism was that some of those new buildings going up were going up quickly and were a bit rubbish. Uh, So in terms of the Olympics, they had to try... Harder, so the quality of infrastructure, particularly in terms of lots of new concrete roads going in, railway lines being improved. Most famously, I suppose, is the Shinkansen, the bullet train, which is it's been in development for years by this point, but they managed to get it ready for um, the opening of the games in October 1964, and it's been this great symbol ever since of Japanese high technology and modernity. I mean, the number of times I've been to Japan and been on these trains, still now when I see one roll into the station, they just look impossibly beautiful and futuristic. And some of this rolling stock is decades old by this point, but it still looks amazing. So I think that's a really big one. I suppose a couple of others which aren't really down to Japan, but which are nicely timed to coincide. One is the ability to broadcast this these games live by satellite and in colour. So Japan's national broadcaster, equivalent of the BBC, is called NHK. They team up with NASA. Fantastic. You've got kind of the space age element in there to make this happen. And then the other one, I suppose, would be um, the photo finish and computer technology that goes into these games. A lot of that technology Japan itself can't entirely take credit for. But the fact that it coincides with 1964 um, is useful. And also there's this careful choreographing that goes on behind the scenes. Japan's Ministry of Education takes over a large element, even though it's supposed to be a city, not a country that's hosting. The National Ministry of Education takes over and does work really hard at the presentational element. It's a real coup. And I suppose you could make a parallel with the Beijing Games back in, when was it, 2008. Just really well done to get across a single particular message. You've talked there about symbolism
2: and about um, taking the opportunity to send a message. Um, And there's no better opportunity to do that than the opening ceremony, of course. Um, What was this one like and what symbolism did it invoke?
3: I think the opening ceremony was used really well, used really clever. And it's funny, just as we're talking, um, the emperor in Japan now has very gently expressed his reservations about what holding the Olympics in the summer of 2021 might mean um, for the spread of COVID. He's not coming out against the Olympics because it would be unconstitutional to take a view like that, but he's expressing that gentle scepticism because the imperial family is very closely connected with the Olympics. Um, And that was the case also in 1964. They used it very cleverly because, of course, for some people the emperor was this evil figure, caricatured in wartime propaganda, um, no longer divine that gets done away with during the occupation. It's not even clear whether he's um, the head of state, actually, by the time of the 1964 Olympics. So instead, he opens them, he gives a speech, but he's presented there as the official sponsor of the Games. So the emperor is centre stage, but in a very innocent and non-political role. So that's useful. Doves of Peace get released um, while the old national anthem is playing in the background, so there's a remaking of the national anthem. Probably most powerfully is this athlete, this young athlete, Sakai Yoshinori, who was born on the day of the Hiroshima bomb, who is chosen to carry the Olympic flame up to light the urn. And, you know, we were talking a moment ago about the, the victim mentality and the role of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in that. To have someone, you know, born the day of Hiroshima uh, come and do that was extraordinarily powerful. And he's got pinned on his chest, the old uh, Japanese flag, you know, the the rising sun, the red disc on the white background. And again, it's part of rehabilitating that as well. It's almost a kind of checkbox approach to trying to rehabilitate some of the symbols which, for people in Asia in particular, um, have had so much damage done to them in recent years. And in in those senses, I think it's quite quite successful i mean even the flag can be controversial around asia now and even for some in japan but at the same time people will see in the olympics upcoming that it's perfectly acceptable in terms of sporting nationalism in japan to use that flag and to have red and white as the japanese colors so that opening ceremony covers all those bases i think remarkably effectively
2: this is possibly an impossible question um was the, was the symbolism aimed at the Japanese people or international spectators? And was it received differently by those two groups? That's a really
3: good question. I think it was aimed at both um, because there is still now, actually, and there was then a current of opinion in Japan that the emperor, it's a very small part of the population, that the emperor should have been hung. Even uh, other members of the imperial family should have been tried uh, and executed as war criminals. Polls, opinion polls around the time of the occupation and afterwards suggest that most people actually were happy with the emperor carrying on in a symbolic role. So I think the opening ceremony is designed in part for that domestic audience, to show how that's possible. By this point, the emperor has done various tours around Japan, appearing as an ordinary person. You still see great respect for him, but I think he's pretty much been successfully sold to the Japanese population by 1964 as uh, a kind of, yeah, a kind of symbol of the state, non-threatening in all sorts of ways. So the emperor at the opening ceremony, I think, is mainly for an international audience. But possibly to try and win over some sceptics at home. And I think the... uh the flag and the anthem there is an element of trying to appeal to a new generation in Japan there so there's a competition that gets held for the general public about choosing the shade of red that they'll use for the official you know tokyo olympic logo i mean it's, it's by modern standards it's not a very interesting competition to to enter perhaps but it does try to you know draw people into that and because there have been arguments in japan between 1945 and 64 about how the war period ought to be taught to children in schools, whether you should go for something that leaves out some of the really controversial episodes like the so-called rape of Nanking, this atrocity in the Chinese city of Nanking, or whether you should teach it in a way that inspires really deep guilt, even amongst the very young. There's a lot of arguing that's gone on and it hasn't been settled by 1964. So I think some elements of that ceremony are to try to show the Japanese population that there is a peaceful and innocent patriotism to be had if we just craft it in the right way. By far and away, the main audience is international, but there is a sense in which there's unfinished business in Japan itself to which the Olympics can contribute.
2: It's so interesting because we don't often think of the Olympic Games as being a forum in which to debate reconstructing and re-understanding history, do we? But this seems to be exactly that.
3: I think that's right. It strikes me that if um, I mean you'll see it next year at the Winter uh, Olympics being hosted by the Chinese, um, which is one reason they say, by the way, that Tokyo can't afford to cancel its Olympics to be then you know outdone by the Chinese the, the very next year. But I think if those Beijing Summer Olympics of twenty o eight had. Been happening next year, you would see a really interesting effort to promote China as being entirely innocent. Such has been, I think, the difficulties in its reputation, particularly since Xi Jinping uh, took power. We're much more worried about China now than we were in 2008. So I think you would see the Olympics used to say internationally, hey, guys, don't worry, nothing to see here. We're a perfectly peaceful and fair dealing uh, internationally. Country. Um, You may well see something like that next year. I'm sure that a great deal of work is going in behind the scenes to make sure that it works out next year. Um, It'll be fascinating to see the choreography that goes into that opening ceremony, I think.
2: Um, And were these 1964 games regarded as being a success?
3: I think so yes absolutely so I mean on domestic and international measures domestically the television audience because I suppose the other big thing about this Olympics was that certainly in Japan people were becoming prosperous enough to go out get themselves a Sony colour television and really enjoy watching uh, the Olympics the audience figures were amazing for the opening ceremony in particular also for um, the final of the women's volleyball when Japan's national team nicknamed the Oriental Witches or the Witches of the Orient managed to overcome come, the Soviet Union, and take gold. So huge buy-in, to use a rather nasty contemporary term, from the, uh, the population in Japan. And then I think internationally, you have plaudits being heaped on the Japanese for how well run it was. Local people in Japan, in Tokyo in particular, are being schooled in how to help foreigners find their way around Tokyo, how to speak to them politely in English, how to extend what anyone who's been to Japan will have experienced this, what's called omotenashi culture, hospitality, Japanese hospitality how to extend that to international visitors and so you get journalists writing about it sports commentators athletes all of them going home and saying how wonderful the atmosphere was how well done the whole thing was and that kind of thing yeah i think that does that does lodge in people's minds there are only a few crucial moments for a country where you have people's attention and the Olympics was, of course, one of those, and it was extremely well used. And I think if you ask people in 1964, even if you asked them probably up to about 20 years ago what Japan meant to them, they would probably say two things. One, was, one would be beautiful tradition with all the aesthetics that come with that tea ceremony kimono. The other would be high technology. And that really begins in 1964. That's exactly what the Ministry of Education in 1964 would have wanted people to go away with, and it was a roaring success.
2: Um, So it is right to see this being a pivotal key moment in Japan's role on the world stage?
3: I think so, yes. I think it... Also, it only becomes that because the messaging of the Olympics is consistent with what Japan goes on to do, which is, you know, to rise to become the second greatest economy uh, in the world. It does remain a peaceful player uh, in the world from that day to this. And also the Japanese government have been really good at promoting traditional Japanese culture around the world. So, you know, via their equivalents of the British Council. They're very good at that. Japan House um, opened up in London not all that long uh, ago. The Japanese government sponsors all sorts of other things, including having British children and Americans and others go to Japan to teach English for a while on the JET program. Plenty of people will have heard of that. Um, those sorts of initiatives, that helps to build on what 1964 achieved. If Japan had wandered into a horrific war within a few years of that, people have said, ha ha, the real Japanese are the ones we encountered in the, you know, the POW camps. But actually, Japan's been pretty consistent, I think, by and large, since 64. And so it's held on to the reputation that it established there.
2: And finally, are there any aspects of these games or their sort of legacy that we've not talked about that we should?
3: I think probably the one that I would want to mention would be those sceptics about the games. It's a shame shame to end on too much of a sceptical note. But I think what the sceptics worried about then has actually kind of borne itself out really up until uh, the early 1990s, if not until now, which is that Japan did go on to restore its international reputation and to become a very prosperous place, but it perhaps hasn't had the kind of dynamic politics that it might have had. You've had the same party in power there almost nonstop since the mid-1950s. Critics of Japan, I think, would probably want to point out that the POW issue was never entirely solved. Even in uh, Tony Blair's time, there was pressure, which was pushed back against by by leaders in Japan to give real serious compensation to the families of the people who who suffered there. And there are those who will want to talk about Korean comfort women, as they're called, people who are forced into sexual slavery. All these sorts of things, for some people, do remain not entirely addressed by Japan. In the way that Germany managed to address its wartime past. Um, so I think that's real and needs to be acknowledged. And for some people, as I say, the bread and circuses approach of the Olympics was more a distraction from those difficult questions than it was a real solution to them. And I think that probably remains the case now.
0: That was Christopher Harding. Christopher wrote a feature on the 1964 Olympics for the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on Oliver Cromwell, the Benin Bronzes, the French Revolution and more. Chris's latest book is The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives. That's on sale now, published by Alan Lane. You can find a link in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this podcast... On Sunday, we ran an episode on the history of the Olympics in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. So be sure to check that out. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Michael Pye will be speaking about innovation and intrigue in 16th century Antwerp.